If you have your Bibles with you, please open to John chapter 1, where we will continue our study of the fourth gospel this morning. And as you are turning there, most of us are probably very familiar with uh, online advertising uh, in one sense or another, uh, mostly because uh, we see it constantly. Uh, we see it uh, pretty much on every single website that we go to, uh, in addition to all of the, the billboards around town, uh, commercials on television, we are, we are constantly inundated with advertisements, uh, and specifically the online, uh, marketing, uh, industry, uh, was a $161 billion industry in 2015, uh, and it is expected to double in size to be over $300 billion, uh, by 2020. Uh, it is a rapidly growing industry because companies value your attention. They want you to look at their products, at their services, uh, at what they want to sell you. And companies are willing to pay quite a bit of money to get you to look at whatever they are selling. And, and as a result of this uh, bombardment, uh, sometimes we end up just... Uh, blocking out any and all of those ads. We, we just stop paying attention to them, which sometimes is a good thing. Uh, but also this bombardment of, of advertisements, this bombardment of information, it forces us to be discerning. Because not everything that says, look at me, look at me, uh, is worthy of our attention. Uh, not everything that says, uh, behold, you need to see this, is worthy of our time to go and read or go and look. And in the middle of a, of a culture and a world that is constantly trying to get us to look at things, look at things that are uh, earthly, temporary, focus upon our desires, the world is calling us in one direction, but God's word is calling us in another. God's word calls us to place our eyes and our minds upon Christ, who is seated in heaven above, where our life is hidden as we saw many months ago in Colossians 3. And our heart will follow our eyes. Now that is for sure. And and our feet will follow our heart. So what we look at is going to be very important in life, which is also why John the Baptist, as we come to this passage, he's going to say something that may be very familiar to many of us. Uh, It's a familiar passage of Scripture. John chapter 1, verse 29. He's going to make a a very profound statement, but he's going to begin that statement with a single word, a word that is intended to capture our attention. He simply says, behold. And what John the Baptist is trying to get us to look at is of far greater value than anything that you can find uh, on the internet. It's a far greater value than anything else in this world. What he is trying to get us to see is Jesus Christ who he is and what he has done on our behalf. And as we come to uh, this section of Scripture, just a little bit of review, uh, the first 18 verses of John's Gospel uh, in chapter 1 form the the prologue, the introduction. It it shows us everything that we need to know about the rest of the Gospel. And then uh, in verse 19, uh, we're going to see the beginning of a week. Uh, a week in uh, the ministries of John the Baptist and of Jesus. And it's going to be a very important week. Uh, and day one of this week, we're going to see John the Baptist uh, testifying, giving witness to who Jesus is uh, and who he is before a group of people, a delegation that was sent uh, from the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem out to the wilderness where John was baptizing. Uh, and they were sent to find out who John was, but John's going to have a message for them that he is not the Christ, he's not Elijah, he's not the prophet, but he's just a voice crying out in the wilderness to prepare the way for the Messiah whom the nation of Israel has been looking for, anticipating, longing to see. And after this day, we come to the passage that we're going to look at this morning, verse 29. You notice the beginning of that paragraph, the first three words say the next day. And then uh, verse 35 begins the next day, and then verse 43, the next day. We're going to have a series of days in which John is going to speak and witness testifying that Jesus is here, the Messiah has come, 
And in this passage that we're going to look at this morning, on day two, he's going to say to his disciples, look at him. Day one, he says to this group of Jews who are come to question him, hey, he's here. Someone more important is here rather than John the Baptist himself. Day two, he says, look at him. And then day three, he's going to speak to two of his disciples and say, follow him, speaking of Christ. But it's on this second day that we will focus our attention this morning. Now, as as we come to this, John has already baptized Jesus about 40 days prior to this. And Jesus has been in the wilderness. And now John is going to testify about what took place when he baptized Jesus. He's going to testify about what happened and why it is important. So read along with me. John chapter 1, verse 29 and following. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And what is stated in these verses is intended to drive home a singular point, the point that we see at at the last verse, in verse 34. The main point of what John is testifying to is that Jesus is the Son of God. And it has an implication there that we are to believe in Him because He is the Son of God. That He is the sacrifice who was given for our behalf. But as we come to this testimony of John, he's going to be giving this testimony to his disciples. Uh, An easy thing to ask is, well, how does John know? Right? That's a valid question to ask any witness who's bearing testimony about something. How do you know that what you're saying is true? And John's going to provide us with answers. That, that question is going to be answered in this passage. Uh, what we're going to see here is John's going to make six statements uh, about Jesus in these verses. Uh, and you could lump those six statements into three categories. Uh, the first category would be John's going to explain or make statements about what he knows. Then he's going to explain why he knows it and then why it is significant, what it means, why it's important to us. Uh, and so let's let's take a look at these six statements and in these three logical categories. So first, what does John know? The first statement that he's going to make is that Jesus is the Lamb of God who will save us. And this is seen in verse 29. Who says, On the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what's interesting is that uh, all the other gospel accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke All three of those accounts record the baptism of Jesus, but we don't actually see the baptism here in the Gospel of John. We just hear about it. Uh, John doesn't write about it. He just tells us what happened uh, on the occurrence, and we have testimony about it. But but listen to this from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3. This is Matthew's account of what took place when Jesus came to John the Baptist to be baptized. Beginning of verse 13 of Matthew 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom 
I am well pleased. What's interesting is that in in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the emphasis is upon Jesus coming out of the water and the voice from heaven, the voice of God saying, this is my son. I am pleased with him. That's the emphasis in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But John's going to emphasize the spirit coming down upon Jesus and remaining on Jesus. That is the emphasis here in John. Uh, And what we see is, uh, as in this setting, as John is there, John the Baptist is there with his disciples, and suddenly he sees Jesus coming to him. Uh, the, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke show us that immediately after Jesus was baptized, he was led by the Spirit uh, out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, and uh, now this is Jesus coming back to John the Baptist and to those with John the Baptist. And, and John is going to make this proclamation. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And again, this is a, this is a familiar passage to us as, as Christians. Uh, but to, to those who were with John at that moment, who were waiting for the Messiah, anticipating his coming, you would have thought that John the Baptist would say, behold, this is your king who you've been waiting for. But he doesn't say that. He says, this is the Lamb of God. With the implication that he's going to be the one who's going to die for you. He's going to be the one who takes away your sin. He's not the conquering hero. He's the one who's bringing a different type of salvation. One that they desperately needed, but they did not expect. And John's going to say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away The sin of the world. He speaks of sin as a singular whole. The sin of the whole world, not the sins plural. But he's thinking of the whole world as a unit. Uh, The sin of the world as a unit. And, And the point here, some have taken this verse and said, well, so Jesus died for everybody and he has paid this for the sins of everyone. He said the whole world. Well, that's not the emphasis because if that was what was meant here, there's no point to the rest of the gospel. There's no need to call anybody to faith. There's no need to call anybody to repentance if everyone's sin is already paid for. Furthermore, if everyone's sin is already paid for, God can't judge us for the sin that has been atoned for already. What is What is being said here, the point of what John is saying by saying that He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's not that every single person's sin has been paid for without exception, but that every single person, uh, salvation is offered to all people without distinction. Uh, That it is not only for the Jews to be saved, but it is also for the Gentiles, to the Romans, to anybody and all who would look to Jesus in faith. That is the, the emphasis and the point of what John is saying here. Now, and when he says the Lamb of God, he's, he's pointing to what we read this morning. Uh, what Seth came up and read for us in Exodus chapter 12, that the Passover of Israel, uh, of alluding to what was it that would save the Israelites? That the shedding the blood of a lamb and spreading that lamb's blood over their door and the wrath of God would pass over them. That death wouldn't visit their house that night because the lamb's blood had been shed. Elsewhere in the New Testament says that Christ is our Passover. That could be what is alluded to here. There's uh, several other passages that could be uh, what John is alluding to. Uh, The Day of Atonement. Because it says that uh, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, there were two goats that were used. One was was killed, uh, and another one, uh, the priest would confess all of the sins of the people, and then they would send that goat out into the wilderness. The idea being that that goat who you confess and lay hands on him and he bears now the sin of the people and would go out into the wilderness. There's other passages in Scripture. Additionally, uh, Genesis 22, in which Abraham was commanded to sacrifice his son and then at the last instant, God provided a ram for the sacrifice. He provided a sacrifice uh, in place of Isaac. The idea here, uh, we don't have a specific point uh, in where we know for certain that John the Baptist is referring to a specific Old Testament passage, but we know generally what he is saying, that Jesus is our sacrifice, that he is the one who has taken our place and borne our sins. Jesus is the one who purchased our redemption by his blood 
on the cross, he bore our sins. And now our salvation doesn't depend upon our merits. It doesn't depend upon our efforts, but it simply depends upon what he accomplished. And now we look to him in faith. That is what we are called to do. Jesus is the one that we must believe in for our salvation. He is the one that we are to look to for the removal of our sins. And so the simple question is, have you done that? Do you look to Jesus as the one who can carry away your sins? The one that you want to lay your burdens upon and he will pay for them on the cross, what he has already accomplished and what we will see later on, that he will send the spirit to live and dwell within you. That is the, the first statement that John makes and the first question that we have to ask ourselves. Do I believe in Jesus in the way that John the Baptist speaks of him here? Do I see Jesus as the Lamb of God who was able to not only take away the sin of the world, but my sin to bring me into right relationship with God the Father? That is the first statement that John the Baptist makes. And the second statement that he makes also pertaining to, to who Jesus is, what he knows about Jesus, is that Jesus is the one who existed before creation. This is in verse 30. It says, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. And John in essence says, Hey, this is the guy I was talking about earlier. Do you guys remember? I mentioned him. I said, Hey, he's, he's coming after me, but he's greater than I am. He has a greater place than me. And why? He explains why. Because he existed before John the Baptist. And what we see here uh, is something that is repeated constantly in these first uh, few verses of John chapter 1. And what tends to happen when things are repeated over and over again? You're like, I get annoyed. No, Uh, you you begin to, to remember it. It sticks in your mind, and that is the point that keeps uh, being hammered here in John chapter 1. I often repeat this to the youth students of, hey, what's the key to learning? Repetition, all right? There we go. Say they know. Uh, and repetition is the key to learning. Uh, and that, that is what we see. John the Apostle is trying to get us to see and understand that not only is Jesus greater than John the Baptist, but he's greater than us. Because the same reason that Jesus is greater than John the Baptist, because he existed before John the Baptist. Raise your hand if that's true, if that's true also for you, that Jesus existed before you. Yeah. So Jesus is greater than us, and that continues to be repeated over and over again because that's what we need to grasp. That's what we need to understand. And that's going to be repeated over and over again. We have to understand our distinction between us and our creator. We are creatures. He is the one who has given us life and breath and everything. We saw in John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, that Jesus is the source of life and light. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. That is what we see, and that is what we see here. Jesus is the pre-existent one. But additionally, the fact that Jesus is the pre-existent one it magnifies the glory of his sacrifice as well. So think about that. Jesus is the one who existed before we did, and yet he's the one giving his life on our behalf. He's the one who's willing to go and sacrifice. He's the Lamb of God, but he's also the pre-existent word that we looked at in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And we should respond by giving praise and glory, honor, and thanksgiving to the Lamb of God who existed before us and who's willing to die on our behalf. That is what John is saying he knows. He says, this is what I know about Jesus. He is the Lamb of God and he is the one that I predicted, the one that I spoke of, the one who existed before me. Those two statements cover what John knows. And he knows that Jesus is the one sent from God. He knows that Jesus is the Messiah who will take away the sins of the world. But then how does he know that? And he's going to explain that as well in the next few verses. He's going to explain how John knows what he knows. And this third statement that he makes in verse 31 is that Jesus was revealed to Israel through baptism. Read with me verse 31. Says, I myself did not know him, 
But for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. See, what John the Baptist is going to confess something here. So he didn't always know who the Messiah was. He didn't have that information. There was a time where he didn't know that his cousin was the Messiah. Yeah, John the Baptist and Jesus are our cousins. But God instructed John to go into the wilderness and to baptize, to have a ministry of baptism, to call the nation of Israel to repentance and faith, to acknowledge that they needed to be in right relationship with God and that they weren't. And John's ministry set the stage for Jesus to come onto the scene. And John's baptism of repentance prepared the hearts and minds of the people to receive Jesus And then when Jesus came to be baptized, that was the raising of the curtain in Jesus' ministry. That's when things uh, would begin in terms of uh, Jesus' public ministry before the nation of Israel. And it was going to be his baptism that would also announce that he was the Messiah. Now, a couple weeks ago, I was able to go uh, and see... Uh, the Lion King play down uh, at the, uh, the the Boise State uh, Morrison Center, uh, and it was my first time going and seeing a play. Uh, but the, just before the the play came on, the lights dimmed, and what was the first thing that happened? Well, the curtain was raised, uh, and that was the cue. From that point forward, okay, uh, the actors are going to be revealed. The, the stage is set, uh, and I'm I'm in to, to view what is going to take place. And that is what uh, the baptism of Jesus was intended to do. It was the raising of the curtain to reveal who Jesus was and what he was going to accomplish. John's baptism of Jesus revealed that he was the Messiah. Because again, think back to what we read in, in Matthew 3. John's not out there by himself. He's out in the wilderness, but it says that the crowds are coming to him to be baptized. And then Jesus comes to be baptized. And what happens? A voice from heaven speaks and the the spirit descends upon him visibly. That wasn't done privately. That was done publicly. People would have seen and beheld this. The same thing that John the Baptist is testifying to. Other people would be able to affirm. Yeah, I saw that. I was there. That's what happened. That is what John is saying. This is what revealed Jesus as the Messiah. And we can take heart in this and knowing this, that God has a plan. And all things are going exactly according to God's plan. Because God said this is how Jesus is going to be announced and revealed to the nation of Israel through baptism. And it's going to happen at this particular time. And guess what happened? Exactly that. That Jesus was revealed right according to God's way and according to God's timing. And we can see and behold that. And this unveiling of Jesus is a part of God's plan for the ages, and it's right on schedule. He has all the details, and he's working them out smoothly, exactly the way that he intended. And then John the Baptist continues to speak about the baptism of Jesus. Verse 32, we see a fourth statement that he makes, that that the Spirit descended and remained upon Jesus. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. And so we see that John is uh, using legal terms. I I bear witness, this is what I saw, and I'm willing to, to testify accordingly. What he is saying is what he saw, what he beheld, and and the idea, the Greek word behind that word, what I saw, is where we actually get our word for theater. It's the idea of looking and examining something closely with your own eyes. Because what do you do at a theater? You're watching closely with your own eyes. Uh, And John the Baptist is saying, I beheld, I saw what happened at the baptism of Jesus. I was there. I witnessed it. I know I saw the Spirit descending. But not only did the Spirit descend, but it also remained on Him. And there's an emphasis there. They're trying to draw our attention to the fact that not only did the Spirit come upon Jesus, but it remained upon Jesus. You're saying, well, why is that significant? Because previously in the Old Testament, uh, the Spirit would come upon kings, prophets, individuals for a specific purpose and only for a specific time. 
Uh, and then after uh, the Spirit had empowered that person to accomplish whatever goals that the Lord had for them, the Spirit would depart. So we see this clearly in Samson. Uh, if you look, turn back over with me to the book of Judges. Turn to the left in your Bibles in between Ruth or Joshua and Ruth. Judges chapter 14. See this guy named Samson. You may have heard of him. Been somewhat familiar. He was uh, one of the judges of Israel. And the judges of Israel got progressively worse. And he's going to be the final one. But look uh, at Judges 14 verse 6. It says, Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. See, whenever Samson was going to go and do something, he was going to go do a mighty work, the Spirit came upon him, leading him, empowering him. Look also at uh, verse 19 in that same chapter. It says, And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down thirty men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who told the riddle in hot anger, and he went back to his father's house. And look at chapter 15, verse 14. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him, and what happened? Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And the ropes that were on his arms became as flax and that has caught fire and his bonds melted off of his hands. Spirit comes upon him and he does amazing things. But then what's also tragic, one of the saddest verses in Judges is Judges chapter 16 verse 20. See, Samson's been playing a game with God, a game of how disobedient can I be before I get into some serious trouble. And Judges 16 is the culmination of that, where he's been playing this, this disobedience game with a woman named Delilah. In verse 20, after she had cut his hair, culminating his rebellion and disobedience against God. Verse 20 says, And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at the other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Those are sad words. And see, in the Old Testament, one pastor says that the the Spirit would come upon people for a time. Again, they would accomplish what God intended for them, and then the Spirit would would depart from them. But what we see here in John chapter one shows us that something different, something new is happening. Because of this emphasis, the Spirit didn't just come and then depart. The Spirit came and remained. And that's going to be repeated in this passage in John chapter 1. And what was prophesied in the Old Testament was that the king of David, the Messiah, would have the Spirit come and descend upon him. This is seen in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. It says, There shall come forth a root from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom, and the understanding, and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. See, the Davidic king who was promised is Jesus, and the spirit is coming upon him, and now he's going to lead and shepherd his people. The Holy Spirit came down and remained upon Jesus, identifying him as the Messiah and indicating that the age of the Messiah. Now things were different in the land of Israel because Jesus came and the spirit is now upon him. And with that dawning of this new age that the Messiah has come, also comes the fulfillment of something called the New Covenant. In our equipping our class this morning, we, we looked at how to study the Old Testament law and how is the Old Testament law applicable to us as New Testament Christians. What we see is that the Old Testament law was replaced by the New Covenant. We are all partakers of the New Covenant if we have placed our faith in Jesus. And now Jesus, as the promised Messiah, is the mediator of the new covenant. And one of the, the promises, the great and amazing promises of the new covenant is that God would transform our hearts. That God would give us a new heart to obey him and that he would actually send his spirit to be within us. To dwell inside of us. And that's what we're going to see. This next statement that John the Baptist makes about Jesus in verse 33 is so key. 
He says, Jesus is now the dispenser of the Holy Spirit. Read along with me in verse 33. John says, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And again, John emphasizes he didn't, he didn't know who the Messiah was. But what he did know is that he had been given a sign. God had spoken to him. We don't have a record of God's interaction with John the Baptist or how God spoke and said, hey, this is the sign that you're looking for. But God did give him a sign. And what was that sign? He says, hey, at, at, while you're baptizing people, look for this. Whomever you see the Spirit of God coming down upon, landing upon and remaining upon, that's the one that you've been looking for. That's the one that you are supposed to announce. And that's how John the Baptist knew that Jesus was the Messiah. That's how he then testified accordingly. And additional information is then given also in verse 33. So that was the sign. So I myself did not know, but he who sent me to baptize, meaning God, said to me, he on whom the Spirit descends and remains, this is the he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So there's going to be a comparison here. Right? John baptized with what? With water. Uh, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in, in passages where, where John the Baptist is quoted, uh, John the Baptist also quotes, hey, I baptize with water, but there's somebody else who's coming, somebody who is greater, and who will also provide a greater baptism. He will baptize you in the Spirit. But then a question arises, and there's been much confusion in the church about this concept of uh, baptizing in the Holy Spirit. Because it's saying that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? What is that pointing to? Well, you have a handy-dandy chart there in your outline notes, and I would ask you to look at that right now. See, the baptism of the Spirit marks an individual's entrance into the body of Christ, into the church. Uh, it, it's a one-time event performed by Christ. Uh, 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Galatians three twenty seven also says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So when you place your faith and trust in Jesus, you've been said, to be baptized into him, and he baptizes you with the Spirit. And it, if you look at these comparisons, so John the Baptist had a baptism of repentance. He was the one who baptized. He baptized in water. Those who were baptized were those who demonstrated repentance before Pentecost, before the Spirit came upon the entire church in Acts chapter 2. The condition of baptism for John was repentance, and the mode was immersion in water. And the result was that that individual was recognized as an Old Testament believer. That they had faith uh, that they could only be right with God uh, through not their own works, but by believing in Him. Now, that's also similar to the baptism in the church in the New Testament, where, hey, the baptizer is usually the pastor. It's also done in water. And it's from believers from the point of Pentecost forward. So anybody baptized from Acts chapter 2 to this day, uh, is part of the church. Uh, that is entrance into the church, and you're marked uh, as being obedient to Christ's command in the local church. The condition is faith, and you are, again, immersed in water. But again, those are things that are pictures, portraits, to help us understand an invisible spiritual reality that takes place when we place our faith in Jesus. Because when you believe in Jesus, is there any outward transformation? Do you get like a mark on your ear or your forehead or no. Uh, so what, what the Lord calls us to do in obedience is to, uh, to do these, uh, these ordinances that demonstrate invisible spiritual realities. Cause look at that column that describes spirit baptism. Who is it that baptizes with the spirit? It's not a human being. I can't baptize anybody in the spirit. Only Christ can. The means is not water, but it's the Holy spirit. It's again, for those in the church age from Pentecost forward, 
The condition is faith in Christ. Immersion is in the Holy Spirit, and it marks entrance into the universal body of Christ. It marks entrance into the church. And the point John the Baptist is making here is that whatever he is doing, Jesus is going to do something greater. Jesus is going to do something far greater. John's like, I baptize with water. And in fact, when, as we saw last week, when the, when the delegation of the Jewish leaders come out and they, they're questioning Jesus, uh, if you turn back uh, to that last paragraph, 20 in 24 through 28, the Fer- now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And, and so they're basically saying, what authority do you have to do this? And he says, guys, it's not a big deal. I just baptize in water. There's somebody more important coming. And you need to focus and you need to prepare for that person. That's who you need to be ready for. That is, that is John the Baptist's emphasis here. And again, if we have to evaluate. If, if this is what is being claimed, that Jesus is able to baptize in the Spirit, we have to evaluate this claim. Is he able to do this? Because if he's not able to, then we shouldn't have faith in it. But if he has the means to, then we can believe it and trust in it. So you can think of it this way, uh, of an illustration. On September 13th, 2004, <clears throat> Oprah Winfrey, to celebrate her 19th season uh, of uh, her talk show, uh, promised her studio audience that, that somebody in the audience would win a car. Uh, and so she handed out these little boxes uh, to each and every person. She says, okay, if you open your box and you have a key in there, you are the winner of the car. Uh, and so uh, all 276 people got a box, and they all opened it at the same time, and suddenly they are all screaming. Uh, most of them in the audience were women, uh, and so it got very loud very quickly. Uh, as they, they rejoiced to find that every single one of them had won a Pontiac G6 car worth about $30,000. Uh, now, now, what's amazing is Oprah gave, but why was she able to do that? If we're honest, that only could happen because Oprah is rich, right? She has the means to afford to give out almost 300 cars worth $30,000 each. I can't do that. So there's no boxes of uh, of keys uh, for any of you. But we have to know and trust if Oprah wasn't rich, if she didn't have the wealth to be able to do that, she wouldn't have been able to. And so we have to ask, how is it that Jesus is able to dispense the Spirit to all who believe in him. Well, he has the wealth to do that. He is the source of life and light. He is the one who uh, gives out the Spirit because he himself has the Spirit dwelling within him, and he is God. So we can trust that he is able to give us spiritual life. And in John 3, that's what we're going to see. That when you're baptized in the Spirit, it's the idea of being regenerated. You have spiritual life in you. You couldn't create it yourself, but Jesus gave it to you, and he gives it out of his riches and his grace. Remember what we saw in the prologue? That we have all received grace upon grace out of his fullness. That is what we are beginning to see here. Jesus is able to give us spiritual life. Because he is God. He promises to baptize us with the Spirit, all who come to him in faith. And we can rest assured that Jesus is able to do this because of who he is. And that is the testimony that John the Baptist proclaims to his disciples. It is what he knows and how he knows it. I know that Jesus is the Lamb of God, who's going to take away the sin of the world because it was revealed to him by God the Father. That's what he is saying and explaining. But then also, he makes this final culminating statement in verse 34. Look with me. This is is what John wants us to see and understand. This is what it all leads to. He said what he knows, how he knows it, and then what it means, why it's significant. Verse 34, he says, And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So John is going to encapsulate his his testimony in this single verse. And and the words that he uses there, I, I have seen... And I have borne witness. 
the tense that he uses there in the Greek has the action continuing. It's as if John is still bearing witness to us this very day as we read these words in our Bibles. He is still bearing witness. He is still telling us that Jesus is the Son of God. He is still telling us that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And also, again, think think this through. For John the Baptist to have made this statement, that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, and according to, to Jewish teaching, if you claim to be the Son of somebody, you're, you're claiming equality with Him. So a, a Jewish man would not have made this type of claim lightly. He's declaring this publicly. Jesus has just been baptized, been gone for 40 days. He's returned, and John the Baptist is already here proclaiming, this is the Lamb of God, this is the Son of God. That was a big, big statement. And it was one that he could have lost his life for. If it's not true, he deserves to be stoned for blasphemy. If you if you turn over in uh, the Gospel of John to John chapter 5, look at verse 18. So we're going to eventually get to John chapter 5 in an amazing passage. Jesus is reasoning with the Pharisees after performing a miracle, healing a man on a Sabbath. Verse 18 says, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. This is not a a statement that John the Baptist would have made lightly. Jesus himself ran the risk of of being stoned because, again, if it wasn't true, he was worthy of blasphemy and and being killed. But John the Baptist is is standing, bearing witness, bearing testimony. He says, I've seen it and I'm willing to testify accordingly that Jesus is the Son of God. And and this culminating point that that he gives to us here has an unspoken implication that comes with it. That again, that we should look upon Jesus according to John's testimony. And notice there's there's two statements that he makes uh, at the beginning, at the end of this little paragraph. At the beginning he says that Jesus is the Lamb of God, and at the end he says Jesus is the, the Son of God. He proclaims Jesus as Savior, and he proclaims Jesus as Lord. And now he's calling everybody who hears his testimony to trust in faith that those statements, his assessments are true of who Jesus is. We are called to believe in Jesus as Savior and to worship him as Lord. That is the testimony that John the Baptist wants us to know. And as we will see in the next couple of weeks, as we look at the remainder of John chapter 1. So John, pro, John the Baptist proclaims, I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Just look with me at verse 35 and beyond. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And the reason for John's testimony is to get us to to follow Jesus. Don't just look, but now follow. Go and walk with him. See who he is and begin to live accordingly. What we're going to see in the remainder of John chapter 1 is what does it look like to, to believe and then walk in faith with Christ? And those two always go hand in hand. We have to believe and we have to walk. We have to trust and we have to follow. As I was reading commentaries this week, I came across a commentary by a pastor and a Bible professor. And in a portion of his commentary, he was lamenting the fact that many of the Christian college students at the Christian university that he teaches at have a love for Jesus. That is so much the emphasis of 
so many of the, the youth ministries and churches today. And that is a, a great and wonderful thing. And I want to encourage all of you to love Jesus. But what this pastor and professor lamented was that his students, even though they loved Christ, they really had no understanding of who he was. They really had no understanding of the Bible. They really had no understanding of uh, theology or of church history. He, he goes into detail of, uh, you know, he would ask his students to just order major books in the Bible of, you know, which comes first, Matthew or Isaiah. Uh, and he, he would just do these, and he, he was amazed to find how many of the students, and he says, hey, these are the best and brightest. These are the Christian families sending their, their children to a Christian university, and, the, and they don't know the basics of the Christian faith. And, and was, what was amazing, you know, the faculty had discovered this uh, according to a, a survey that they had conducted. And he writes this, he says, This discovery sobered many of us and renewed our commitment to curricular goals that go far beyond mere piety or outward uh, manifestations of holiness. Students are coming to us who understand the Christian walk, but who do not understand Christian thought. Their lives have been baptized, but seemingly their minds have not. They have devoted their hearts to following the Lord, but they have not mastered the bare essentials of Christian history and theology, and much less biblical theology and history. And he writes this, he says, Many mainline denominations have been wrestling for some time with the question of the ordination of homosexuals. He says, Recently I attended a major discussion in my own denomination, led by some of our elected ordained leaders. He says, I was amazed as I watched the presentation unfold. The foremost virtue, we were told, was loving God and loving our neighbor. And since homosexuals were neighbors, we should not only love them, but ordain them to ministry. Of course, love is a virtue, but so is a well-reasoned theological understanding of man and a well-reasoned use of the scriptures. It says, here's my point. Piety without theology was winning the day. That loving God became a spiritual mantra while there was no room for obeying him or listening for the more complex nuances of his expectations in the human enterprise. In other words, there was no compelling theological framework from which our leadership could answer the question, should I ordain the homosexual? The point there is not homosexuality, but that the theological tool shed of these leaders was empty. That's, that's what he is empty. Uh, emphasizing the emptiness of their theological grid. And what we see in John chapter 1 is the opposite of that. John provides us with a theological grid. He tells us how we are to understand ourselves, right? Jesus is greater than me. I can point to him, but I, I, I need to act and respond in humility. I'm a creature. He is the creator. I'm here to point to him. And we need to know for certain when somebody asks, who are you? Hey, I'm a creature, I'm a, I'm a citizen of my king. I belong to Christ. I need to understand who Jesus is. This same pastor said that he, he was once asked by a mature adult believer, uh, or he once asked a mature adult believer why Jesus was called the Lamb of God, and he was told because Jesus is nice and gentle. Again, not understanding, oh, Jesus is our sacrifice. He is the one who has died in our place. And I know as, we, as we've covered this first section of John, there's been a whole lot of who Jesus is, right? A whole lot of what we need to know and believe about him. Because we need to know that. We need to know the one that we are placing our faith in. And all of these, all of these details, this understanding of what Jesus does for us when we believe in him, that he baptizes us in the Spirit, and now as Christians, the Spirit is living and dwelling within us and enabling us to do what we could not do before. We couldn't obey God before, but now the Spirit empowers us to do that. These are the little theological truths, theological tidbits that we need to begin to think about, remind ourselves of, of and begin to build a theological framework by which we are able to now be prepared for other questions, other greater questions in life 
And how do I live to the glory of God? Our doctrinal truths that we have seen today must be understood with both our minds and our hearts. And we have to have right theology, but we also have to have right practice. You could say orthodoxy, a word that you've heard, means sound doctrine. We also need orthopraxy, sound practice. And we have to behold the Lamb and believe in the Son, which means we have to know the truth about Jesus. And may we love Him more, follow Him more, and grow in our understanding of Him. And I pray that we have done that together this morning. Let's go to him in prayer. Almighty God, we come, Lord, acknowledging our weakness, acknowledging that we are but creatures and you are our creator. God, we come to you with a desire to worship, with a desire to know you, with a desire to learn about you so that we might love you in a greater way each and every day, moment by moment. And Lord, we are so deeply humbled and so deeply grateful that the Son whom you shared intimate communion with from eternity past, God, you were willing to send him to the earth. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for being willing to become flesh and dwell among us. God, we thank you for your plan to save us, to rescue us. And we acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the lamb that you have provided as a sacrifice for our sins. And Lord, we praise you and thank you that we can be forgiven by what he has done. We long to trust Jesus evermore as our Savior. And Lord, we believe that he is your Son, the Son of God, whom we are to worship, who we are to look to as our Lord. And Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts, in our minds, help us to embrace these truths, that you would work through your word to teach us that we might build a theological framework and understanding of the foundation of our Christian faith. And then, Lord, help us to live for your glory. Lord, help us to be faithful messengers, faithful witnesses, even as John the Baptist was. Help us to speak clearly and accurately about who Jesus is and what he came to do. Help us to bear testimony about how he has worked in our own lives. And may we decrease as he increases. May we decrease. May we grow downwards in humility as we point others to our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.